This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is the Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me today, once again, Lionel Makokotlela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela Garin, Dumela to our podcasters and the world today. It's Tuesday. Yep. Uh, Lions, today's show is all about labor strikes. Can I strike? Not right now. Okay. Right now, if you're, uh, if you're one of the bus commuters, you're in terrible trouble because sure. we're in the grip of a of a bus strike. Not only that, Gary. I mean, the budget deficit, it's going to kill them because buses are a bit cheaper compared to taxis. And now people are actually forced to take uh, taxis as a result of this. It's quite a very dire situation for most people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this, this, this very bus strike is strangling our country and uh, there's no end in sight right now, Lions. And the wheels are literally coming off. The wheels on the bus are falling off. Where's the birthday kid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are we going kindergarten? <laughs> yeah, the wheels are definitely coming off, Lions. Uh, the bus strike now in its 21st day has affected tens of thousands of commuters, as you rightly say. School kids especially can hardly get to school. Certainly. And many of their parents have, you know, no way of getting to work. Oh, no, certainly. I mean, if imagine if you have to pay 30 rand a ticket on a monthly basis and now you have to be paying 150 that is going to really make a dent in one's budget. And we're talking about low income earners here. And it's quite a very dire situation. And I hope that the industry does find a, a resolution sooner than later. Yeah, I think we, we absolutely all do. Yeah. Right now, Lines, do you know that uh, when it comes to striking, mm. we in South Africa hold the world title. We are in fact... We are the That a queen, yeah, absolutely. I have a huge crush on Freddie Mercury. He's he's still alive in my memory. If he was alive, he'd have a crush on you, Lance. Ah, oh, thank you, Gary. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> we have the unfortunate title of being the world champions of striking, and there's no gold medal for that one. <laughs> Except our economy is not going to be performing as competitive as those uh, other countries. So, yeah. yeah. Joining us today, we have two attorneys. With myself, is three. With you, it's three and a half, Lance. <laughs> So uh, first up, let's introduce a labor, spe- labor law specialist, Johan Burtis of one of the uh, top law firms in the world, really. They have an office in South Africa. Johan Burtis of Baker McKenzie, an old favorite of ours. Welcome, Johan. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you, Lionel. Good to be here again, man. Yeah, but oh my goodness, did you see how it looks? <laughs> Very sinezy. Oh, I'm, I'm blushing take, already, guys. Your picture will show. He's got uh, a bow tie. In Afrikaans, they call it a strikta. Nochal. <laughs> Nochal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah, Lionel has a crush on you as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, also with us, uh, a, 
a man that a lot of people have a crush on. Uh, he's from my law firm, Dewey Hertzberg Levy. It's Saul Smith. Welcome to you, Saul. Hey, Gary, and hi, everyone else. Thanks for having me back. Cool. Johan, uh, no one wants this title of being world champions of striking. The question to you is, why have we become the world champions of, of striking? What is it? Um, uh, Gary, it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, if you look at the statistics and the number of man days lost, and man days it's a you know misnomer, people days lost due to industrial action. Uh, there's no doubt that at some stage over the past couple of years we have become the leaders in that. We we've lost the most number of of days due to industrial action, and uh, there's a, a magnitude of factors that contribute to that. I think we've got significant challenges as far as our collective bargaining system is concerned. There's no doubt about it that the 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 serious inequality that we have in our society plays a significant role. I mean, the gap between the, um, between the haves and the have-nots, you know, the lower end of the population and the, and the very rich keeps on getting worse. Our Gini coefficient is something ridiculous. I mean, we have the worst in the world. So all of that contributes to what we're seeing. And for me as a practitioner, um, it's not only the fact that so many of our bargaining processes end up in strikes. It is the violent nature of the strike that really causes me sleepless nights and causes me to worry about, you know, how do we solve this this enigma that that, that there's the the problem of uh, collective bargaining in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, let's we're going to continue with that, uh, Johan. Let's give out our. Uh, Twitter details Do oh, yes. you want to do that one? At Hetzlaw H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W You may get uh, in touch with us By giving us any topic That you would like us to talk about We will get a specialist Who's going to really spend time on it And really make it A much simpler uh, topic To talk about On yeah. a day-to-day basis Absolutely Lance. In fact people can write to us on law at cliffcentral.com and we'll pick it up and deal with it. Certainly. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. And you can like the Facebook page and you are more than welcome to actually have any suggestions Published on the Facebook page And we do welcome any topics That you would like us to talk about And remember, we are going to get you Somebody who's a specialist Within the specific area of law That you would like us to talk about And that's going to be free of charge We are the biggest pro bono office on air (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely Um, But it is pro bono It is pro bono Um, Our partner, our collaborative partner Is Legal Talk South Africa With their 180,000 Wow, we've we've reached 180 I think they're 200 short or something Wow, that's great No, this partnership But I mean, it's all because of your hard work Gary, and your leadership And this leadership is actually transforming People's lives on a day-to-day basis Because most people don't have access to legal uh, Services, and as a result of your Hard work, as well as this partnership We are able to actually touch people's lives Kudos to you. Thanks to you, yeah, yeah, Lance. Yeah. Uh, you do a hell of a lot of good work and we appreciate it. The man that we have to thank from Legal Talk South Africa is Ray Green. He's their founder. People write in and post all kinds of legal issues, questions, and Ray makes sure that they get answered. Yes. So they also they give a great service. Between the two of us, our podcasts are pinned on their page and uh, their questions get answered like this very one. It comes from Amica, from uh, Twani, she says, you're, you're part of the world lines. She says, good day. The bus strike is affecting two of my employees. They have just not come to work since last week. I've now been advised I cannot deduct from their salaries as unpaid leave as they don't have paid leave. Is this right? And then she says, I have another employee making use of taxis to get to work. He lives further than the other two. What am I to do? Johan, you want to 
jump in on that one. Yeah, it, it is really unfortunate. And what this question shows us is the the very uh, um, the the human nature of these strikes. You know, so it's not only affecting the striking workers; mm. it has a wider impact on the community. And of course, I mean that's ultimately the reason for strike. That's why trade unions go out on strike, as it's a mechanism to exert pressure on the employer to say. You know, I want you to accede to my demands. In this situation where we have, um, Annika as a, as an employer saying, listen, I have three employees. Two of them cannot come to work or are not coming to work as a, as a result of the bus strike. They effectively stuck with our transport. Mm-hmm. The other one is coming to work at probably, um, as Lionel said earlier on, at considerable extra cost. Now, how do I deal with this disparity? You know, I have two employees who are not coming to work. It, it feels wrong to punish them because the, the transport system on which they rely is failing them. But yet you have somebody else that's, you know, going the extra mile, if you'll excuse the, 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 the terrible oh, cliche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? um, uh, and, and, um, how do you, how do you deal with that? So let's deal with the basics. So firstly, when an employee does not uh, arrive for duty or tender service, you know, that is in general terms, it's an, it's an infringement. It's an infringement of the employee's duties. Um, and the employer's obligation to remunerate that employee falls away. So if you don't come to work, my obligation to pay you falls away. And that applies to the striking workers as well. That's where the whole no work, no pay principle comes in. But if I don't arrive for duty, my employer doesn't have to pay me for, uh, for, for my failure to arrive or for that day. Um, in addition to that, the employer may have a right to take action against me for my failure to to attend that because it, it may be misconduct. In this case, the employees would probably say, "Listen, there's nothing that I could do. It's outside of my control. Mm-hmm. So it's not my conduct, my act or omission that caused me not to come to work, but it's because there's no transport available. So the the plea to employers would be to treat situations like this, you know, with empathy. You know, one must have empathy for your employees who are, who are not able to come to work. Having said that. If you have uh, another employee in a similar situation who is actually making effort and getting to work, you know, I would like to think that there, there should be some discussion with the other two employees and saying, what are those circumstances that are preventing you from being able to do so? If it's a financial issue, you know, perhaps a, a, sh- a short-term loan to the employees could be extended in can order it, to assist them. Can an employee them. pay for that? Pay the extra and the, give them? The, an employer can. There's absolutely nothing wrong. Of course, yeah. we've got the normal economics at play here to say, yeah. listen, is it um, – is my business in a financial position where I can uh, pick up the tab for additional transport for my staff members? That would seem to be the humane and the sensitive thing to do. But if I was in Annika's position, I would certainly have a discussion with the two employees who are not coming to work and saying, guys, this is the difficulty that it's causing for me. Yes, I'm not going to pay you for this period. I think the advice that Annika got with respect is incorrect. Um, it, when the employees don't come to work, you are not deducting unpaid leave from their remuneration. You are actually just not paying them because they're not at work. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not an issue of you are now on unpaid leave. I'm just not paying you because you didn't tender your service to me today. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm being an empathetic employer. I would like to say in Annika's position, and I'm not going to take disciplinary action for your failure to come to work. But you I'm also have to pay you. You also yeah. have to appreciate that I'm not going to pay you for this period that you can't tender your service to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. Sipo writes. If we stranded without any prospect of help, can you approach the South African Police Services SAPS to take you home? <laughs> so, can you see that happening in Ari? It's very unlikely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, very, big, very the, big, unlikely. Uh, the, the big white and blue flashing light Uber service. No, I don't, I don't see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to deal with a whole a lot of stuff, uh, Johan and Saul. Uh, people don't really know 
they just know that, that their work is striking. They see them outside a, a business and uh, they're making a noise and, and screaming and shouting. But there are all kinds of strikes. There's a protected strike. There's an unprotected strike. There's a go slow. There's all. There's, there's millions of aspects. So let's talk firstly about a go slow and the various kinds of strikes that there are. Happy to do so. So I mean, if if I can detour for a second and give you a quick history, you yeah, know, of, yeah. of of strike. Where does where does this term strike come from? Yeah. So in the um in the 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 late. 18th century, or um, there was a, a strike or a industrial action by London dock workers, and they they refused to um, to provide labour. And what they did, they went up the the masts of the sails that were in dock, and they struck down the top of the gallant sail from the from the ships. And that's where the term striking come from. They literally struck down the terms, and from then on, it just caught on, and and that was known as a, a strike. Work stoppages were known as strikes. Mm. So essentially, what a, what a strike is is me as my as an employee. I'm saying to you, I'm not going to give you my labour. You're not going to have the benefit of my labour for today. I'm yeah. refusing to to provide that with you. And that takes all sorts of forms. From a strictly legal perspective, it's important to understand that in Section 213 of the Labour Relations Act, there is a statutory definition of what constitutes a strike, and that becomes very important. Important, for instance, when you want to interdict strike action, because the court will look and say, does this conf- uh, confine or fall within the bounds of what constitutes strike action? In general terms, striking means me and a group of employees, because one person on its own cannot strike, it must be more than one person. We are a group of uh, employees, we have a demand on a matter of mutual interest, so it's something between us and the employer, mm-hmm. and in order to place pressure on you to accede to that demand, we're withholding our labor. And that withholding our labor can take the typical form of we're staying away from work, we're not coming to work, we're not reporting for duty. It can take the form of picketing, we're standing outside with placards, you know, we having a bit of a song and dance, you know, having some chats with maids, there may be some music playing as these things would happen. Um, or it could be what you refer to as a go slow. Mm. The old joke in, in, in HR circles used to be, you know, how do you, uh, um, HR has gone on strike, but how can you tell? <laughs> so, <laughs> all my HR colleagues will not enjoy that one. But, yeah, yeah. but so a go slow means a, a work retardation. That's a legal concept in section 213. Uh, People often think that if I work to rule, the rule says I must produce eight round black tires an hour. Now, mm-hmm. over time, we have managed to push up our productivity to 10 round black tires per hour. Now, if I go back and I fall back onto the rule that says eight round black tires, that is not a work stoppage. That's not a strike. It's not a go slow. It is. The reality is whenever there's a work retardation, even a refusal to work overtime under circumstances where you've previously agreed to work overtime or are bound to work overtime, that constitutes strike action. So it's a a withholding of labor or a retardation of work in respect of a matter of mutual interest. Okay, so go slow really means that the, the people are just slowing down. Correct. And and is it visible? Can you actually see it? I mean, or, or is it just a number, a matter of, of counting the number of ties? Or can you see them kind of slowing and striking? Sure. And, yeah. and and this is the interesting thing. I think part of what's broken with our collective bargaining system is that we've fallen into this very binary way of dealing with with problems in, uh, in 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 negotiations. You know, if we can't reach agreement, we go on strike, and strike takes a specific form. Mm-hmm. If you look, for instance, and there's a lot of this floating around on social media at the moment about the Japanese bus driver strike. The um, uh, I haven't been able to independently verify this, but the, the the what is reported on social media is that the Japanese bus strikers are going on strike as well. 
well. But what they are doing is they still pitching for work, they're reporting for duty, they're driving their schedules, but they're just not taking fare from the commuters. So the commuters are not being inconvenienced, but the owners of the bus company are not getting the benefit of the of the of the fee of the fare. Yeah. So you know, work stoppages and strikes can take various shapes and forms. Let's just talk to Saul. I know you've been looking at that one, that's, Saul. On, that's yeah. a much better way of striking because not only do you put pressure on your employer, but you also gain the sympathy of the public. In our situation, we've got a we've got a situation where the public is is the Helen with the bus drivers. I mean, there's no sympathy. The bus drivers can go to hell. Mm. They're, they're, they're screwing up the whole country. They're, they're, we, we, we have no sympathy with them. Their plight, they must just go back to work. That's how we feel about it. And it's not, a, it's, it's not, a, it's not productive. It's, it's mm. counterproductive. What the Australians are, or the, the Japanese are doing, they, they've fostered massive amounts of public sympathy because everyone's behind them. They're not charging us. It's fantastic. Let's get behind these guys who are offering a service to us. Let's, let's fight for the bus drivers. Very different to what we've got here. Oh. Is it working? Does that work yeah. in, in Japan? Can you imagine if, you're, <coughs> if you own a bus and your bus driver pitches up and you fill the bus with petrol? I, I suppose in Japan it's probably electric. Mm. But here you, you fill the bus with diesel. Mm. You incur that cost. You incur wear on the tires. It's a double whammy. It's, it's worse than just not having the driver. Can you not get fired for that because you're not really fulfilling your duties as per the contract that you signed? Not if you're on a protected strike. Oh, Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so Johan, what about a work stoppage? Okay. Is there such a thing as a work stoppage, and is that does that constitute a, a strike? Sure. So to answer the second part of the question first, yes, a work stoppage does fall within the definition of a strike, provided, of course, it meets the other elements. It must be more than one person. It must be in respect of a demand of mutual interest. You know, so five of us just down tools, you know, mm. in the workplace, and we walk out of there. If there's no demand on a matter that's of interest between. Myself or this group and the employer, that does not constitute a strike. But if there is a demand, so we want higher salary, we want better working conditions, we want a bonus, we want this, that, or the other. If so, if there's that sort of demand and we down tools, a work stoppage constitutes a strike. Now, typically what you would see with work stoppages is that you would have a lunchtime picket or a lunchtime strike, for instance. So employees would say, listen, I, I can't afford to forfeit a whole day's wages. Mm. So I'm going to come in and during my lunchtime, I'm going to stand outside and I'm going to pick it and I'm going to say to clients of the employer, don't support this employer because they are horrible people. They don't want to support our dem- or they don't want to give in to our demands. Oh. Or I'm going to, we're going to have, um, and this is many employers worst nightmare, what's called a grasshopper strike. So the, the workers give notice to the employer that they are going to go on strike. And then at some stage they do. So today, all of a sudden, for an hour, we just down tools and we walk out. But we come back an hour again after that. They, and then two days or three days. They don't get paid for that So they don't hour. get paid for that hour that they, that they stopped. Yeah. But they tendered service for the others. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a defense to that. So if the employer says, listen, it's, a, it's the accept your non-unemployed contractors, you know, where I say, listen, you didn't perform in terms of your contract, so I don't have, my counterperformance don't have to follow either. Yeah. But say for that little technical defense, it is a very effective way of striking because the employer cannot plan for it. He cannot get um, replacement labor in to deal with that one hour that you are now stopping unless they, they know in advance and it's, it's practically possible for wow. them to do so. I yeah. think uh, uh, something, that, yeah. something that can follow on directly from that, Johan, maybe you can fill us in. Would uh, a reactive lockout be an answer to a grasshopper strike? And, and, and that's exactly part of the reason why employers employ lockouts. So let's talk about lockouts, for instance. What is a lockout? So strikes, we've discussed and we said that is a weapon in the hands of the employees of the trade union to compel the employer to give in to their demand. The old 
trade union adage goes that collective bargaining without the right to strike is nothing but collective begging. You know, so if the employees employees collectively can withhold their labor, it puts the power back into their hands to to force through their demands. Now, what our legislature has done, and this is not unique, and it's a, a part of the the, the ILA. ILO, International Labor Organization approved process, is that the employers also have the right to say to workers, we want you to give in to our demands. We want you to accede to our demands. And until such time that you do, we're not going to allow you to tender your service. And in return, we're not going to pay you. Now, this is dramatic. I mean, so what you're basically saying to the staff, staff say, uh, the striking workers say, we want a 10% salary increase. The employer says in return, okay, no, I'm not going to give you a 10% salary increase. As a matter of fact, I want to take five of your additional annual leave days away, you know, so that I can affect some saving here. And until such time that you give in, you let go of your demand for salary increase and you agree to my demand to take some of your existing benefits away, I'm not going to allow you to come back into the workplace. And I'm not going to um, – uh, I don't have to pay you for this period. Wow. So it's, it's dramatic. It has a significant impact <coughs> on the employer relations climate. So employers exercise that right with due trepidation and rightly so as well. Mm. But effectively what it does, it places a similar weapon in the hands of the employer um, to say to workers – this is what I will do if you're not going to uh, accede to my demand. Um, what Sol referred to as a reactive strike or a, a defensive lockout, what the Labor Relations Act um, tells us is, is that you can lock out staff. You know, there's a, a procedure that you have to go through and there's some substantive requirements that you have to meet as an employer as well. If you do so offensively, so there's a, there's a dispute between the parties. The employer says, I don't care whether you're going out on strike or not going out on strike. You must go and stand outside and I'm, I'm locking you out. That is called an offensive lockout. The effect of that is that an employer may not use replacement labor. Mm-hmm. If you defensively, when the trade union or the employees go out on strike, immediately after they go on strike, the employer then says, okay, as a result of your strike, I am now locking you out. That is a defensive lockout, and that then gives the employer the right to use replacement labor. When you talk replacement labor, you talk what we call scab labor. Correct, correct. Yeah. You know. So how does it work? If, 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 if there's a defensive lockout, I can employ as many people, scab laborers, to replace the, the striking workers, is that, is that how it works? That, that's right. So what, what the law then allows an employer to do who does not offensively lock out staff members but in, res, in, in, in uh, response to a strike locks the staff out to deal with, for instance, what we discussed such as the, the grasshopper strike, to deal with the, the adverse effects of not being able to manage your workforce. Mm. If the uh, employer locks out the staff defensively, it is allowed the opportunity to use replacement labor. And there are various rules relating to that as well. For instance, our Labor Relations Act makes it an offense and say that you may not dismiss an employee for a refusal to do the work of striking workers, for instance. Okay, So there are various uh, mechanisms mm-hmm. built into the Labor Relations Act to really protect the right of strike. I mean, the, the legislature correctly, in my view, sees striking as an important mechanism, an important tool in order to maintain balance between the parties. Um, but if I defensively lock you out as uh, as your employer i am allowed to get replacement workers to come and do your work yeah let's talk about what everyone's heard of but no one really knows what it is there's a before i you know i'm a lawyer i know these things but i've been asked so many times what is a protected strike and what is an unprotected strike give us the distinction in the two 
That, that is a good question. Uh, this is really important for especially employees out there to understand because the law attaches consequences to both those concepts. Mm. What our Labor Relations Act says, remember, if we take it back a step, Section 23 of our Constitution enshrines the, light, uh, the right to fair labor practices. Mm. The Labor Relations Act, as one of our suite of labor legislation, gives effect to that right to fair labor practices, and it says um, every employee has the right to strike. Okay, So... But in order to get the protection of the Labor Relations Act to be able to tap into that constitutional right to strike, you must have a valid reason. There must be substantive fairness in relation to the strike, and there must be procedural fairness. Mm -hmm. Substantive fairness means that the reason why you're striking is not prohibited in law. So I didn't sign an agreement with you, for instance, as my employer, that I will not go and strike on this issue. And this happens. You know, trade union and employer reach agreement on wages, and the trade union agrees as part of the collective agreement that for the duration of this agreement, we won't strike on this issue again. Because you can imagine, I mean, it will be chaos. If I reach agreement with you today, I'm going to pay you 10% salary increase for this year. Mm. Two days later, you have a new demand saying, now I want 11% mm. or 12%. Mm. So the Act recognizes and say that if you agree that you won't go and strike on this issue, you are prohibited from doing so. Same thing, if you can refer the matter to the Labor Court or the CCMA for adjudication, you may not strike on that issue. And there are a couple of similar substantive requirements. And then there's procedural requirements. You must refer dispute to the CCMA, to our employment tribunal. You must have a certificate of non-resolution issued or 30 days must lapse. You must then give the employer 48 hours notice at least of your intention to strike and tell them why you strike and how the matter can be resolved. Mm. So those are the substantive and procedural requirements. And if those are met, then we have a protected strike. Protected merely means that your right to embark on that strike is protected and the employer cannot dismiss you or take action against you for exercising that right. However, that is then contrasted, contrasted with an unprotected strike. An unprotected strike by implication would be where you don't meet the substantive or the procedural or both requirements. Mm. So if I just go and strike, and this is what we refer to in the industry as wildcat strikes. Yeah. So employees really get so upset you know, with conduct of their employer that they say, listen, we're not going to refer dispute to the employment tribunal. We're not going to wait for all those requirements. We're going on strike now. Mm. Now, the unfortunate effect of that is that is an unprotected strike, and the, you lose the protection that the Labor Relations Act gives you against con the consequences. Because remember, in terms of the common law, in terms of the common law, I must make my services available to you. Mm. you know? And if I don't do that, it's misconduct. Mm. The legislation gives us protection, say that notwithstanding the common law, if you don't avail yourself to me, you know, and it's a, it's a protected strike, the employer cannot take action against you. But if you don't do it within the ambit of the Labor Relations Act, meeting substantive and procedural requirements, then the strike is not protected, and you can be dismissed for that. Hmm. So le let's talk about it practically, Saul or, or Johan, whoever. If, if the staff, if the employees want to go on strike, they have to, one of the formalities is they have to go to the CCMA first or a bargaining council to try and mediate this matter before they go on strike. So it's not like people can just go on strike. I think we, we've got to understand that. Is that right? So 100%, Gary, 100%. Yeah. How yeah. Does, what does the CCMA do there when, when, when this well, if, reaches if, them? If, yeah? if you have a dispute, um, a, a dispute of right where uh, – sorry, a dispute of interest where um, your employees want X, X rays or X 13th check or whatever it is that they want, and they go to the CCMA to try and mediate that. Mm -hmm. The CCMA will then – a commissioner will sit with all the parties, preferably with uh, a, a trade union representative. If there is no trade union representative, you deal with a workers' forum or something of that ilk. Um, 
if there is no resolution at that stage, if the commissioner cannot bring the two parties together to get some sort of um, uh, to, to bring them into agreement, then there is no outcome, and the com- the commissioner isn't entitled to enforce a decision on the parties. He can't force them and say, pay 10% or you, you, you must settle on 8%. He cannot do that at yeah. that stage. All he can do is try and, and, and bring the parties together. Yeah. When he fails, or if he fails, because yeah. the, com- the commission's very good. Uh, the commissioners are very good. They've had a lot of experience. They're well-trained. Generally, they, they can get these things sorted out. Mm. Um, when there is no resolution, then they issue a certificate that says, I can't, we can't fix this. We, we've tried. We tried to bring resolution, but we can't. And here's a certificate that says that we can't. Only then can the striking work. After, after a certain number of days, 30 days well, or so. Well, if yeah. he issues the certificate there and then. Can they, they go on strike? They, they, can, yeah. they can give notice of 48 hours there and then. If there's no certificate, then the, the employees have to wait 30 days. Can an attorney sit in on, the, on that very mediation? Yes. There is a a bit of a misconception that attorneys can't go to the CCMA. They can only – you're restricted when it comes to a a dismissal, uh, unfair dismissal arbitration. There you have to ask for permission from the the commission. But in in this situation, yes, you can have your attorney present. Johan, does the attorney sit outside or where does he actually – yeah, so so for conciliation proceedings, you know, yeah. there are limitations on when when you are allowed uh, legal representatives. You know, as a legal representative, you're entitled to raise issues in limine and to deal with jurisdictional aspects. As a general proposition, during conciliation, when the parties should have the opportunity to speak frankly and to try and resolve issues, legal representation is, is, is not permitted. But um, often I, I find that especially um, – you know, with with seasoned commissioners, they appreciate the assistance that trained legal professionals can bring to the party in order to to do reality testing with their clients. In order to say, listen, how do we resolve this thing? Mm. But but I, I want to touch on a very uh, interesting aspect that Saul raised. I mean, we talked about interests and rights. You know, and and this is important to understand from the concept. Where does strike action? Where does lockout? Where does it fit in in our whole um, employee relations uh, uh, system and model within South Africa? Um, so if I have a right, so I've got a right to a salary, you know, in terms of my contract, my contract says I must pay, I must be paid 100 rand a month. Yeah. If you as my employer don't pay that, I can go to court, I can go to the CCMA and say that in terms of my contract you're supposed to pay me, you're not doing it, um, I'm asking either for specific performance, order him to pay me the money, or they've breached a contract and now I'm going to sue you for damages. Mm-hmm. So I have a right to a matter. But as a general proposition, I don't have a right to a salary increase. I don't have a right to a bonus that we didn't agree to in my employment contract, but over the time it became important for me and say, listen, I actually now want a bonus. Mm-hmm. So in order to create that right, you know, I have to use power play. And that's where strikes and lockouts come in. They fall under the banner of, of power play. So you've got adjudication or dispute uh, as a dispute resolution mechanism, and then you've got this power play. So when um, when Saul says that the CCMA cannot adjudicate and say, listen, you give them 8 or 10% salary increase, that is 100% correct, because the legislature, our scheme says that it's up to the parties to reach that agreement. Nobody can unilaterally impose that on that. Of course, there are, uh, there are exceptions to that rule. So, for instance, if you're working in essential service, you're working for ESCOM, you're working for, for a hospital, then we cannot afford to have those people out on strike. Mm. So the legislation created a, sp- a special category they call essential services. And those disputes, those wage disputes, are then resolved through arbitration, where the parties make submissions to an arbitrator, and the arbitrator says, okay, 
you give them 8% or 10% salary increase. Mm. And that is such an interesting thing because I think as a, as a practitioner, we haven't tapped into the, the possibility and the potential that lies within such creative solutions to our collective bargaining problems. There's an interesting analogy. The, the Americans call it pendulum or baseball arbitration. They call it baseball arbitration because years ago there was a famous baseball strike and that is eventually how they resolved it so the the baseball players association and the owners association couldn't reach agreement on the salary increase for the for the baseball players what they then did instead of taking the baseball players out on strike they agreed to an arbitration process and that arbitration process um, as the pendulum name suggests said that i'm sitting here as an arbitrator i'm going to listen to both the players association and the owners association and you're going to make representations to me on why I should give, let's say, a 10% salary increase or no salary increase at all. Mm. Why it's called pendulum arbitration is because the pendulum must only be on one side or the other. So I don't have any discretion to award anything else but either 10% or zero. So I cannot award 8%, 5%, 6%. What that forces the parties to do is to put on the table their most reasonable offer, yes. you know, to allow the arbitrator to favor their, their perspective. Mm. So there are various mechanisms, some alternative dispute resolution mechanisms out there that I don't think we're tapping into properly. Instead, mm. what we're doing is, you know, we're falling back on what we know, what we know, you know, the, the old Maslow thing. If, 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 if only, if the only, uh, mm. answer you have is a nail or the only thing you have is a hammer, you know, then every problem, every problem, is, the problem tend to, tends to look like a nail, you know? Yeah. Um, so if we can use other creative mechanisms to resolve some of our collective bar, bargaining ails we may you know fortuitously lose our, our our tag of world champions of striking the um the police is an essential service correct if, they can't strike is correct. that right they would go to arbitration they they would and but it's also important to understand not everybody and same thing with the defense forces defense force also precluded from striking mm. but there are elements within those forces that you know that do not form part of the the regulated um, uh, uh, positions that can indeed still go on strike. So s- certain support services uh, elements, for um, for instance. Mm-hmm. But w- w- what I think the essential service mechanism um, shows us is that there are other ways for us to resolve our disputes of interest, our disputes to say, can I get a salary increase? Can I get a better bonus? Can you afford me a transport allowance that I don't have a right to in, in, um, at now, other than just merely going out on strike or using the right to lock out? Let's talk about picketing for a moment. Uh, we see it all over. I walked into a supermarket a year or so ago, and uh, outside there were hundreds of people striking and picketing. What happens if these these pickets become a little violent and, and people start smashing windows and that? What can you do about that as an employer? So... Picketing is an interesting. Um, it's an interesting tool, and it also dates back, you know, hundreds of years, um, where you you have all these uh, images of, you know, in, in New York and Chicago, you know, workers standing outside and mm. talking about not breaching the picketing line. You know, um, picketing is effectively just a mechanism to el- either elicit public support or exert pressure on the public not to support an employer. So picketing is us physically standing outside, refusing to give our, uh, to, to, to make services available to us, but I can go on strike and go home without picketing. Mm. So picketing, picketing is just an additional element that's brought in, uh, into it. The Labor Relations Act caters for picketing and it sets down certain regulations and rules that must be followed in respect of picketing. You, you know, who is appointed to manage the picket, for instance? What sort of facilities do you make available, um, for, for the picketers? There must be picketing rules. And part of the amendments to the Labor Relations Act that is now 
now being proffered, um, aims to, to boost some of that. You know, we talked about what is wrong with our collective bargaining system. Why are we the world champions of striking? Yeah. Part, part of that, from my humble um, uh, position, you know, is that I think we we have within trade union elements of uh, of, of of shop stewards that hijack um, collective bargaining issues and coerce workers into strikes where there's no large scale buy-in into the reason to go on strike. And the only way for the strike to become effective is for for um, those elements within the trade union movement to then use coercion, intimidation in in order to get public support for the strike. So you often hear the stories. I mean, I hear from my clients, I hear from employers. You know, when I, when I was still in business, this is what we heard from the workers as well that. I want to come and support you. I want to come to work, but my house is going to be burned down. I'm going to be assaulted. Uh, you know, if there's going to be, there's intimidation going on. So one of the mechanisms that's in the proposed amendments is that we need to have a ballot. A trade union must have a ballot of its members before it goes out on strike. So at the moment, there's no ballot requirement. You know, you, if you, if you have a local shop stewards committee, they can call us, call a strike and declare a dispute. And take the workers out on strike. You know, once this um, uh, provision comes in, the trade union must be balloted. The members must be balloted, and more than half of them must vote in favor of the strike. Mm-hmm. I think that will significantly limit the number of strikes, and it will paradoxically make striking more effective. How because do you feel you'll, about that line? Well, that that sounds yeah. like a very reasonable way of actually uh, dealing yeah. with it. But yeah, it's yeah. very it's it sounds very much fair. In other words, if you right now, if you have a hundred workers and only five decide to go on strike, the lot the, the whole lot go on strike. That's mm. the way it is. Well, those yeah. five workers can yeah. declare the dispute and yeah. and through various mechanisms. Most yeah. of them intimidation. Uh, in, exactly. I mean, that's why, in my view, I think we see the level of violence associated with strikes because you've got a large group of people saying, "But I'm not going to strike for an extra half a percent." You know, it doesn't make any logical sense to me i'm going to have to you know for if you want to take me out on strike for for two weeks i'm going to have to work for three or four or five years in order to make up that deficit it doesn't make sense to me absolutely if you're on strike for a month or two to get back so how does it work yeah well if you're out for a month uh that's a 12th that's a 12th of your annual salary that's that's eight and a half percent so if you're not going to get eight and a half percent you strike you were striking for nothing striking for nothing and that's that's very often the case, isn't it, Johan? Sure, and and, yeah. and that's why I'm 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 really in favour of the balloting thing, because I mean trade unions are the ultimate democratic vehicle that we should be using. You know, mm. trade unions are there for the workers. The workers form the trade union. The workers say we elect you as our representative, and you go out there and you can bargain on our behalf. But where we have the movements being hijacked by individuals with ulterior motives mm. in in instances, you know, I think this very noble. Uh, um, movement that is a trade union movement suffers as a result and workers suffer as a result. So I think mm-hmm. these mechanisms that can be introduced to ensure greater transparency and get democracy back to, into the trade union movement can, how, how can only assist all of us. How far away are we from that ballot? Well, so um, the, 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 May, um, the, the strike that was called by SAFTU, the, uh, the new federation, that um, uh, where, where we had the mass stay away two weeks ago, mm. part of that was on the face of it because of the national minimum wage. But if you look carefully um, you know, through the subtext, there's, there are, there's a triumvirate of issues being raised there. So there's the national minimum wage issue. There are the changes to the, to the labor legislation. And then there's a SAFTU demand to have a seat at NETLAC. Mm. So I think the main driving force actually – between, um, you know, for the for the for the stay away was not so much the national minimum wage, but more because the 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 resistance to the changes because it will make it will blunt a very effective tool that the trade unions have at the moment to at the drop of a hat, you know, take workers out on strike. 
um, and then of course the demand to to actually uh, go and sit at Netlag. Uh, Saul, do you want to comment? Yeah. Um, I just, if I may, if I may ask Johan a question. Um, now do I'm nervous. Yeah, don't worry. It's, mm. it's, it's a doozy. Do, do you find that often the, the uh, attitude between the unions and the employers is sort of an us versus them thing, where there's, there's almost no connection between them, there's no communication, there's always a, a fight? Do you, do you feel that that's... That's, that is the situation, and that's sort of not the right way to play this? So I think inherently and unfortunately, I have to agree with you. I think a lot of our industrial or employee relations is still t- stuck in a very old and unfortunate paradigm. You know, I see a lot, especially within the manufacturing industry, especially out there in the agricultural industry, I see a lot of, you know, 1980s industrial relations playing out, you know. Um, there are really progressive workplaces as well where employers understand the need for greater cooperation with the, with the employees, with the, with the organized labor. Um, so, so I do think there's great scope for us to do this. What, what, what one shouldn't um, bear sight of is the fact that inherent in this relationship, you know, between an employee and employer is conflict. You know, the, the theorist will tell us you can't wish that conflict away. When I make my services available to you in return for remuneration, m- one of my needs, you know, is to get as much remuneration as possible. One of your needs as my employer is to get as much productivity out of me as possible. And that tension is always going to be inherent in this relationship. Mm-hmm. What, what, what we're trying to do in a proper employee relations climate is to manage the conflict that's there, not try and wish it away. We say that conflict is there. How do we manage it? By creating various communication models, you know, to have grievance procedures within organizations, to have disciplinary procedures, to have dispute resolution mechanisms, to allow for strikes, to allow for lockouts, so that we can manage that. Because because once you, d- uh, you have um, uh, unmanaged d- uh, conflict within th- the system, the, the disputes become negative. Well, but what happens in the situation where an organization keep talking about not making money, but then the CEOs as well as other of the top managers tends to get very good bonuses and this, public, uh, this uh, results gets to be published most of the time. What about those sort of situations where you feel that the power dynamics are actually imbalanced as opposed to being balanced? Sure. And, and I think the the sad reality of that is that there's a large number of employers, executives that are just completely out of touch with the reality of the uh, the majority of the workforce. Um, the argument that you'll hear as to why executive remuneration is what it is and should be what it is, mm. is that, look, there's a scarcity of skills at this very high end of the market. And if I'm not going to, you know, pay the CEO or the CFO this, this amount, then he or she will just go somebody else, elsewhere. They are willing to pay them and I'm not going to be able to replace them. I must say to you, as a skeptic, I don't really buy into that. I think we've got a much greater depth of talent, uh, than, than we hold out to be. Um, but if, if, if I'm a worker, if I'm a, a lowly paid worker and my employer says, listen, I can't afford to give you a 10% salary increase, you know, of my 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 rand a month salary. Meanwhile, our audited financial statements that are published shows that, you know, the, the CEO and the executive team gets multiples of, uh, uh, of their annual remuneration as bonuses. I mean, it would certainly not sit well with Absolutely. me, and, I, and that yeah. must contribute to the, to the level of dissatisfaction, disgruntlement within workers, and what propels them to go out and strike and say, listen, we don't buy into this fact that you can't afford to give us another percentage salary increase. What's the answer to that one? So, 
<laughs> well, I guess the answer would simply be people be uh, having more of a consultative uh, process where then you play open cards. But sometimes open cards don't necessarily heal the results that you want, mm. and in most cases, people resort to striking as a as a last resort. And, and and I think finding mechanisms to get large scale buy-in, make, making employees owners in the business, you know, yes. looking at mechanisms such as employee stock option schemes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, giving employees shares in the business, so that when the business prospers, it's not only the exec, the top level, that gets the benefit of increase in share price, you know, but everybody can uh, um, assist through that. Mm-hmm. Finding mechanisms to say, how do we spend some of our wage bill, you know, in order to make the lives of those at the lower end of the spectrum so much better. That's bringing them into the company so that they work together as a team. You become proactive as opposed to reactive, which is what most employers don't necessarily uh, like doing. So, yeah, good mm. point, Lance. Uh, we have a few questions here. We know that during a strike, Johan and Saul, um, you're not obliged to pay an employee who's on strike. Can an employer reward a non-striking worker? That's such a good question. And, and interestingly, you know, if you read through the law report, you know, this question has been before our labor court in a couple of guises. Um, and the, the general sort of sense that uh, or the, the argument that employers use is that, listen, I had workers going out on strike and no harm, no foul. You know, I didn't take any action against them for striking. However, those employees, we used our first example of Annika this morning, yeah. the, the employee who now paid extra in order to get taxi fare to come there, you know. Um, that really bent it over backwards to assist me whilst the other staff were, were out on strike. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems unfair that I don't reward that individual for going the extra mile is the phrase that was used in one of the, in one of the judgments. The Labor Relations Act says you cannot punish and by extension disincentivize somebody from exercising the right to strike. Mm-hmm. So where I incentivize somebody else for not striking, Effectively, what you're doing is you're undermining the right to strike. Yes. And the court said, and the courts have had a look at various examples from giving them, you know, shopping center vouchers to paying them extra remuneration to giving them time off. You know, you cannot, um, in a very transparent manner like that, say to staff members, I appreciate the fact that you didn't exercise your right to go on strike and here's a, here's how I yes, show my yes. appreciation. Yeah, and what about in a case, sorry, Saul, did I interrupt? You, you, yeah. you must draw a distinction. Let's go back to Annika. Where she she has one employee who's incurring extra costs to get to work. Mm. So if if Annika was to pay those extra costs, that's not an incentive. That's that's a reimbursement of a loss. So you could you could do that. Yeah, and, and I think what makes Annika's case different as well. You know, none of the employees are on strike. You've got two employees who just. Un- unable to get, get yes. to work mm-hmm. and another one it is. So if Annika had to say to all three of them, I know you're not on strike and I know you have to incur extra costs. So how about for the period of this bus driver strike, which is not your strike, I will pay you an additional allowance just to allow you to come to work. Mm-hmm. Good point. What about the employer who, who's, who normally pays uh, its employees in the form of, of food? They give food, they give accommodation. During a protected strike, is that employee entitled to that accommodation and food, even though he's not getting wages? Sure. Yeah. yeah no, I, that's I, a very controversial one. <laughs> it, it is. And this is the difficulty. Uh, uh, again, understanding our history, our legacy, mm-hmm. you know, of the system that, uh, that we had for so many years, you know, that we're not trying to, to remedy. You had a lot of migrant workers, you know, coming, uh, coming from, um, from various areas to come mm-hmm. and work in the, in the factories, on the mines. Um, and, 
what the Labor Relations Act says to us is that you don't have to provide those services to the employees. How, because uh, they go on strike. So again, the basic principle, when you don't make your services available to me, I don't have to remunerate you. Mm-hmm. Remunerate having the wider sense. So if I give you an allowance, if I give you a cell phone allowance, but you go on strike, I don't have to pay you your cell phone for that period that you're on strike because I don't need you to use your cell phone for mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. However, um, if you ask me as my employee, to continue making those services available to you. I'm obliged to do so, but I then have the right to recover the cost incurred at the end of the period. Oh, really? So, for instance, if you make food available to me, you make accommodation available to I me. I have a canteen yeah, normally. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, so the picketing workers outside on strike, you oh. can't now say to them, listen, you can't, you can't have the food. But what you can say to them, if they ask you, say, please, can you continue to make the, the food service available to you? You can say to them, happy to do that, but at the end of the strike, I'm going to recover my costs from you. Mm. And the same for How accommodation. Do you do that? Sorry, can you deduct it? You can't deduct it. How do you recover the Well, pro- provided you, you bring it within the ambit of Section 34 of the Basic Conditions of Employment Act that prescribes under which circumstance you can make deductions and what process you must follow for that, you can. Yeah, this is also interesting. Oh, no, it's like, very interesting. Yeah. But what, are, what about like human rights in terms of accommodation? Can you kick them out if then they're using your hostel, for example? Yeah, as you as you said correctly when the question was first asked, it is indeed a controversial issue. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we we've uh, um, represented the client who had picketing workers, um, but where they made certain accommodation available to to staff members on a it wasn't mine as it turned out to be. Uh, and the court said, no, you don't have to continue to provide them with that accommodation. But that was based on the specific facts of that, spe- of, of that particular case. Mm-hmm. As a general rule, the court says you should continue to provide them with the accommodation because you have the right to recover the, the, the cost that you incurred mm-hmm. for that at the end of this period. But in certain instances, the court has been willing to go as far as to say that in, in those circumstances, you can evict them from the accommodation um, and, and they must – come to work every day to come and picket there on their own bat. You know, you don't need to fund them to do that. What happens if the picket uh, becomes uh, – have, have we dealt with this one where the ticket, picket becomes violent or becomes out of hand? Where do, I think, Saul, you were involved well, in a matter like there's, this. There's one of the advantages of a trade union is that they know the rules. Mm. So when they start a strike and they start picketing, they've, they've got their picketing rules in place. And you, before a strike happens, you have to agree the picketing rules. Mm. And those rules would would say where they can, as as Johan said, where you can strike, where you can stand, uh, what time you can be there, all of those all of those rules. Now, if there's no picketing rules in place, there's still there's still misconduct. So if this if if the picket turns violent, mm-hmm. you can dismiss those violent workers for misconduct, but not for being on strike, but for misconduct. Mm. Once those picketing rules are in place, then, then you, can, you, can, you can discipline employees, even though they're on strike, for breaching those picketing rules. Does mm. the CCMA play a part in any of this? Um, they do. If you've agreed your picketing rules beforehand, then the CCMA doesn't, doesn't need to be involved. Mm. If there are no picketing rules in place, you can actually apply to the CCMA to bring those, the, the, those striking workers or their representatives to the CCMA so that you can discuss and agree to picketing rules. Mm-hmm. And they're, mm. quite, they're quite good at, at, uh, um, at getting that process done very quickly and efficiently. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. that, that is a good point. And I'm, I, I want to latch on to one of the things you mentioned there, you know, we, we discussed the protection that the Labor Relations Act grants employees, you know, where you participate in the protected strike, you know, and by extension, protected picketing action. 
but none of that protection relates to you committing misconduct. So whether it's during a strike, whether it's during a lockout, whether it's during a pickup, if you as a striking worker or a picketing worker or a locked out worker assault a colleague, you know, cause damage to property, there's nothing that actually protects you from that action. The employer can and should always, in my respectful view, dismiss you because there's no place for that type of conduct during strikes or pickets. Um, the interesting aspect, and this is what makes law so fascinating, you know, we don't only deal with this one act. In in one action of conducting a picket, there are numerous pieces of le- legislation that, that come into play. So you've got, for instance, the uh, Prevention of Illegal Gatherings Act mm. that comes into play as well. So if I'm going to picket in a public area, I need to get permission from the municipal manager. You know, there's certain regulations that are applicable there. And a couple of years ago, you will recall the um, – the security workers strike in the city of Cape Town with the city of Cape Town successfully instituted action against one of the large trade unions to recover damages caused by the picketing workers you know where the workers went on the rampage caused damage to various businesses within the uh, within the within the city and uh, in terms of the prevention of illegal gatherings act the uh, the the city was able to hold the trade union liable for the damage caused by its members because there's a, a strict liability that uh, accrues in terms of that act yeah, and if then there were no evidence of such people doing it, like let's say video footage, because most unions would actually say, but those were not our members. How do you then go about quantifying that, or is it then their liability to make it upon that it's a peaceful conduct going from A to B? Yeah. So the so the trade union assumes liability, you know, in terms of the Prevention of Illegal Gatherings Act for the conduct of those members. But but you're 100 percent correct um, in the in the employment context. I mean. You'll often hear the, the the trade union saying, "No, but we implored the members not to turn violent, not to behave themselves, you know, to act within the confines of the of the picket." But um, you know, Wiley employers will will set up CCTV cameras, you know, will record the uh, the proceedings, so that if there is to be unwanted action, that they're on a position from an evidentiary perspective to identify the culprits and to single them out. I mean, we can we can talk about this issue. This it's so fascinating um, because there's there's been recent case law dealing with. Um, uh, the the conduct of groups of workers on strike, mm. you know, where the damage was done, and the employer then dismissed the entire group of striking workers on the basis that you either knew or you either participated, you know, in the in, in causing the damage, or you knew about it, and then you had an obligation to come and tell me about it. Mm-hmm. And the matter went to the labor court. The labor court agreed with the employer. The matter went on appeal to the labor appeal court, and the labor appeal court said, "Hang on, this this is taking it just a step too far," because. It's, there's nothing wrong with the concept of saying, as my employee, when you know about wrongdoing within the workplace, you have an obligation to come and tell me about it. And if you don't, I'm going to take a dim view of it and I can even dismiss you. The Labor Appeal Court is saying, I'm happy to accept that as a valid proposition. But then you still have to prove on the probabilities that I knew. You know, you can't just say because you were there, you yeah. ought to have known. So the, the Labor Appeal Court said, if you could single it out to a group of people that you could catch on a CCTV footage that you can say you and you and you and you and you were there and you saw what happened and you didn't come and tell me about it or you're not willing to participate in the investigation that we can say but you can't just say everybody that stayed away or everybody that was in that general area on the day had to have known because I could be standing there and not seeing what's what's happening Mm. in a two or three or five or ten meters away from me and that's where the labor appeal court said no the employer erred and it could not take action against the entire group for um, for for that misconduct. Johan, we don't have much time left. How do you see the um, nationwide bus strike being finalised? What's going on behind the scenes generally 
at this time? You've you've been behind the scenes. What are the employers doing? What are the trade unions doing? How is it working? So um, um, I, I must come up for the CCMA in this process because I must say I think the CCMA unfortunately gets a gets a raw deal in the media quite often. Mm. My experience with the CCMA is there's, there's a group of really seasoned practitioners there that especially with these issues of, of a national interest get involved. Uh, um, I know Commissioner Arun Dockrat, for instance, uh, leads a team that deals with these type of issues and they proactively get involved. And I have no doubt that they're facilitating and getting involved in that process and advising the parties and trying to use all the, the tricks you know, that commissioners like that up, have up their sleeves in order to try and get the parties uh, to, a, to a resolution on the matter. Um, I don't want to create the impression that I know, you know any of the, the detailed intricacies of this specific strike and the bargaining behind that, but I can only imagine that there must be room for some of these creative alternatives that we've discussed you know, in order to resolve the impasse. Um, I, I think there's definitely a need for seasoned mediators mm-hmm. and facilitators in important uh, collective bargaining processes up front, not only when things start going wrong. Mm-hmm. I think we need to get to a point where when we're dealing with whether it's SAA, whether it's ESCOM, whether it's other main role players, right off the bat they say, let's get somebody involved, let's get the CCMA involved to assist and guide the parties through this process to limit the prospect of this matter going out on strike. Mm-hmm. And then if the matter, if, the, if we break down, if we are unable to find resolution on this matter, let's agree up front that we're going to use creative alternatives such as pendulum or baseball arbitration, you know, mm-hmm. or, um, or, or con op or op met, you know, in, in order to try and resolve this issue. Yeah, all great. Very practical advice from you, Johan Burtis of Baker McKenzie. Many thanks. Been outstanding. Do you know that an hour's gone by as quickly as that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saul Smith from Dewey Hertzberg, leaving many thanks to you. Lionel, as always, thanks for your contribution. Bye, donkey. Bye, And donkey. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Until next Tuesday. Yes. Uh, cheers for now. Yes. This is CliffCentral.com.